The great French novelist Alexandre Dumas completed his famous work, The Three Musketeers. It's the story of three reckless young fellows in the service of the royal king, Louis XIII. And they lived a life of continual chaos. They were always in and out of scrapes, falling in and out of love, giving and taking offence, fighting duels, fighting amongst themselves, drinking and carousing. Made nightmare tenants, weren't they? But the moment that the honour or the name of the King of France was in peril, they closed ranks, drew their swords, and were prepared to fight a regiment in defence of the honour of the king. You may remember that their motto was all for one, one for all, together we stand, divided we fall. And that's part of my message this morning. But there's far more to defending the honour of a king than just coming together with something a bit like a football slogan and making up your mind to do something. But there's a parallel between what I see in the, in the Three Musketeers and this very complicated passage in Nehemiah. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult passage, let's, let's be honest. Chapters 1 and 2 read like an adventure story. They're very exciting. They're first person singular. It's Nehemiah telling you how, what all happened. And suddenly it changes. You go into this impersonal third, third person tense and it reads like a telephone directory of, of unpronounceable Middle Eastern names. And you think, what is going on? And how do, how, do I, how do I preach this? And you have all the valley, you have all the gates and the bits of geography. And a lot of preachers, I've noticed, will, function, will focus on the gates. Each of which had a, a different symbolic and spiritual importance. And that's fine. But today... I believe there's a spiritual dynamic here that is of great importance to you and me. And I want to draw it out with you. I've already started to talk about it. You see, in any significant undertaking for God, it is not numbers and strengths in human terms that count. It's our concept of how great God is. That's what the three musketeers would never have understood. But when we come to great endeavours and achievements for God, it's our view of him. It's not our view of what we have. I believe that the church in this kingdom today resembles very closely the church, the people of the returning exiles of Babylon in 5th century BC. Now, you've already spent two weeks, three weeks in this book. Did you do Ezra before it? No, you didn't. Okay, well... No, it doesn't matter. I, I'm, I'm not going to give you a great deal of backstory. I'll tell you what you already know. These people, first of all, were very few in number. If you read the second chapter of Ezra, he actually names and counts the people that came back originally with Zerubbabel, you know, nearly 100 years before. 42,360 of them. The number is given. With Ezra, 1,700 came back. With Nehemiah, with whom we're now concerned, he only brought back a bodyguard. We're talking about a small, small number. Less than 50,000, less than 45,000 Jews came back. 45,000 out of a great nation, which before the taking of the northern kingdom was about 2 millions, maybe 2.5 millions. 
Two and a half percent of the population came back. A tiny remnant. Weak. And we too are a tiny remnant. The last survey that I read showed that the proportion of regular church attendance in this country has dropped from around nine at the beginning of this century to six. They're calculating by the year 2020, it will be 4% of the population and the average age will be 56. Hey, we won't be looking so old, will we? But what a tragedy. And then if you think, but hold on, so many of those people go to church out of a sense of duty or tradition or this or that. How many are born again out of that six or that dwindling percent? We're down to about the two and a half percent that Israel brought back from Babylon. We too are a remnant. Second point, they were weak and demoralized. Nehemiah said the people are in great trouble and reproach because Jerusalem lies in ruins. She's desolate. The walls have been down for 90 years and in the Old Testament, walls are a symbol of many things. Strength, protection, salvation. And they'd done nothing about it. The chief priests would have been the natural leaders. They had done nothing about it. They'd been so demoralized. They just existed. They were a tiny island of true worship surviving in an ocean of heathen idolatry. Does that sound familiar? I am looking at a tiny island of true worship surviving in a sea of idolatry. People don't realise it's idolatry. But they are when they worship anything other than the true God. And our, our great trouble, our great reproach is that in your lifetime and in mine, I'm talking to anyone over the age of 50, we have seen a, an enormous erosion of our Christian values, of our principles. We, we, we've seen education secularised. We've seen Parliament pass laws specifically to redefine marriage, redefine adoption. We've seen the courts used, and they're being used almost every week now, to persecute Christians for their beliefs. You dare not open your mouth against the great God of political correctness. How I hate political correctness. And as for speaking about pluralism in this country, to try and persuade people that there is only one way, one truth, one life, you're going to end up in prison fairly shortly. And some have already. That is why we're weak and demoralized. And we have our own Sanballats and Tobias. And believe me, friends, Many of them are going to get into Parliament next week. And I don't know what they have in mind for us. But we too are a weak and demoralised returnees. And finally, Judea, you won't have caught it yet, but you'll catch it in, in chapter 5, was in the grip of a huge economic depression. Chapter 5 is full of ugly facts. You see, the... We tend to think that all the Jews came back to Jerusalem. They didn't. Go back to Ezra, and Ezra will tell you how they actually went back to their land. And he mentions 25 villages and towns. They go out. Some of them come up here, Tekoa, Mishpah, uh, Bethur, and others. And they went back to their land after a break of something like 80 years, 
to try and regain their land. But of course, people have moved in. Have you ever tried to get a squatter out? And you can just imagine that Israel is full of frustrated families and clans trying to reclaim ancestral fields and wells and houses and barns and vineyards and olive groves. And they couldn't do it and, and they had to buy back some of it. And it. A lot of it's about money. And the text clearly tells us that not only was the great king in Persia screwing the people with taxes, the governor, the Jewish governor, was also adding his own taxes. And they were desperate, they were starving, they were taking out mortgages they could not repay. It's all there in chapter 5. They were selling their children into slavery. Now that was a great reproach. I'm sorry whoever I've taken a little bit of whoever's going to preach chapter 5. But it's important here, you see. It's something that Nehemiah has to get right. That's, that's the glory of the story. But we too are living in a ruined post-Babylon economy. The latest figures show that the average level of unsecured debt in this country is £6,000 a household. That's not mortgages. That's credit cards. That, that's loans. Do you know how many food banks there are now in this country? Over 500. Something like 1.3 million had to receive emergency three-day packages last year to keep going. People are borrowing money just to keep going. We see it bad in Taunton. We don't see it in bad as, as, as in some places. Nehemiah, you'll learn a bit later, was feeding people out of starvation, out of his own pocket. Says he was slaughtering six fat, well, they were they were sheep a day. How many, come on, farmers here, how many, how many people can a sheep feed? No one done a lamb roast recently? <laughs> About 40 to 70 on a lamb, so rather more on a sheep, times six. He, he, he is feeding several hundred starving people, and he's earning poultry as well. We are living in a ruined economy. Now, how do we apply this? What's the message here? What's the message out of Nehemiah? See, in any broken society, to ask anyone to do anything is a terrific ask. It's a terrific sacrifice. Because you're just eyes down, focused on getting by, on existing. So, I believe, I will put to you, that if you're going to ask the people for a sacrifice, make it a big one. I, I know the scripture that says, despise not the day of small things, look at the ant, etc. If you want to do something significant for God, if this church wants to do something significant for God, so that its name will rank amongst great churches, and not for that sake, but for God's glory. If you want to be a South Chard, if you want to be a Holy Trinity Brompton, if you want to name it a church you admire, think big dreams and take big challenges. I was thrilled about that, about that uh, 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 appeal for Nepal. You know, we're thinking of doing it. You got on and you did it. And it doesn't matter what the, what the sum was, you showed an earnest heart. Put that big ask before yourselves. It was William Carey, the first missionary to, China, to, to India. You remember he said, what did he say? Expect great things from God and attempt Great things from God, not small things, great things. Now, let's get back to Nehemiah. Repairing the wall was not a small ask. 
It wasn't just asking anything. First of all, we got the length of it. <coughs> Scholars debate how, exactly how large uh, Jerusalem was at this time. It was far bigger than, than David's, King David's original city. It was probably about the size of Hezekiah's city. And if you trace out the walls, we're talking something between two and two and a half miles. That's the distance from here to Currymallet. Okay? Walk those lanes. We used to drive those lanes when we lived in Beer Crocombe, many happy years, to come here. And it's a long way. Two and a half miles of rubble. Now, let's be quite clear, it's not rebuilding. They could never have done this work in 52 days. What had happened was the Assyrian engineers and army officers had toppled. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'll get lost if I look at that. Uh, but that's okay. Those have got all the places. Jerusalem, Judea. But that periphery is, we think it's about 150 acres. So you can work out uh, a boundary limit from the, from, the, from the size. And it's somewhere between two and two and a half miles, as far as I could make out. They had toppled the wall. They hadn't destroyed it completely. The great uh, basal blocks would have been there. But the rest of it was in chunks. I, Jackie and I have been to Jerusalem, like, like many, been privileged to be there. We've looked at bits of Hezekiah Wall. And the boulders are big, but there's little that two men, two strong men, cannot lift together. But there was so much of it. And, 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 and it had to be done with lime mortar to stick together. So they were actually clearing enormous amounts of rubble and placing everything back again like a dry stone waller, except that they were using lime and mortar as well. It was hard, back-breaking work, and it needed a big labour force. Now, amongst all those difficult names we, that Jackie and I read up, there were actually 41 named leaders. And that's not 41 men. We would imagine them, I would imagine them, each controlling a team of maybe 100. How many, how many workers could one man control, even with deputies? 200 at most. The workforce is somewhere between 4 and 8,000. Say it's 6,000. That's not a lot of people. And here's something that everyone I have heard preach on misses. Um, which is interesting. I mean, I'm not claiming to get credit, but God just said to me, have you considered the time of year? I thought, well, presumably they did it when it was cool. Go to chapter 7, and it tells you clearly the work was completed on the 25th of Elul. Now, Elul is the sixth calendar month in the Jew Jewish calendar, and it falls somewhere between mid-July and beginning of September. This year, 25th of Elul is, is the 9th of September. Do you see where I'm going? These men, these women, these youngsters, rebuilt two and a half miles of rubble with their bare hands in the baking heat of an Israeli summer, July to the beginning of September. The skies over Jerusalem are cloudless. Rain is virtually unknown, and the temperature soars into the mid-80s. Those are the conditions under which they work. It, it, it's quite astonishing. And, and the last thing about, about not just asking anything, because we're talking about ordinary people. We're talking about what I call plus people. 
PLUS, people like us. You know, they're, they're ordinary guys and dolls. They're religious people. That they're merchants, that's business people. They're, they're, they're goldsmiths, that's craftsmen. They're all the outsiders who come in from the farms and the villages to help, and we read about them. There are women, because at one point it says a man's daughters walked along, worked alongside them. They'd have been unmarried daughters, teenagers, girls. There's even a parfumier, for heaven's sake. I hope you didn't miss him. Was he, was he, in, your, he was in your scripture? Uh, he's probably, he'd probably be a metaphor for a scientist. The authorised version calls him um, an alchemist. You've got the whole gamut of society there, but not one professional builder or engineer. It's amazing. And now we see the next principle. The gauntlet is laid down. Come, says the Allah, let us rebuild the wall. And immediately you put a challenge before people, they respond one way or the other. Even if they say, hmm, I'll think about it, I'll get back to it. That's a response of a kind. That means they've decided not to get going immediately. And you know where you are. And, and, and this is what's such fun. It says right there in verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest, and his pre fellow priest went to work and rebuilt the sheep cave. They are what we call the early adopters. They got it. And so well they should because they were the religious leaders. They got it and they headed up the team. They set the example. The priests and with them the Levites, the temple servants. I think it's a wonderful picture. I think it's important it comes, it comes first. Because, you see, this is another important principle for us. They're making no distinction between the secular and the divine. And how often are we in the past, maybe not in a church so much like this, where you're very much self-help, and where so, much, so many of the congregation are involved in ministry, but in larger churches where you have pastors and executive pastors and administrative pastors and everyone's got a title, there's this great temptation to stand back and say, I'll let them do it. They're the religious people. Missionaries, youth workers, evangelists, you name it. If they've got a title like that, there's a temptation to sort of make that kind of work sacred. And everything else will do. But the sacred stuff will leave to the professional. And here we see the priest, God bless them, saying, no, we're going to do this to the glory of God. What does it remind you of? A line in Paul from Colossians. Whatever you do, do with all your heart as for the Lord, because it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. He is your master. You and I, friends, don't do anything for ourselves. If it's got any value, it's done as for Christ. Let's remember that and encourage each other. And then with the, with the early adopters, you get the early decliners. Uh, look at these characters in, in verse 3. The men, of Jericho, uh, no, the men of Jericho are doing good. Incidentally, Jericho comes to the, um, the, the rescue of Jerusalem, which is wonderful. Uh, it's verse 5 the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors now a lot of people have when preaching this would say I think that they just didn't want to get their hands dirty that it was below them but I think that's a bit unkind Tekoa was a hill town a dozen miles south 
of Jerusalem. And it was lonely and it was vulnerable. And I think it's equally, you can equally interpret this, that the leaders would have been afraid of reprisals from Assyrians, from Samaritans, from marauding Bedouin, from whatever. And they thought, if we take our men and we're going there, they go for nearly two months, our women, our flocks are unprotected. And they, just, they made a decision not to. But the great thing is that the men didn't go with it. Because we read in verse 5 that the men of Tekoa actually repaired the next section. And later on, it says they also repaired another section. You can check that out in verse 27. And we get six examples of different teams doing more than one task, multitasking. There'll be a section of the wall, then they'll also do a gate and rehang gates, or they'll repatch and rebuild a tower, or they'll patch up the homes. So these are generous hearts. They're going beyond what's being asked of them. What does that remind you of? What does our Lord Jesus say in Matthew 5 when he's preaching in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, a man asks you to go that mile, go the extra mile. Show willing. Be part of his problem and solving it. And, you know, the church needs men and willing, women, willing, ready and prepared both to get their hands dirty and to take the risk. Moving on. In any great undertaking for God, your heart has to be right before you begin. A, a great attempt, an undertaking for God, starts here. And I think we see this, I don't think I'm stretching the text, but just bear with me. See that the Jews and the Israelites, when they went into battle, there was always a period of ritual cleaning before. And you remember the great the ritual cleaning that took place before they... They, they, they went into the land of, um, uh, uh, of Canaan. But not everyone was cleansed. The sin of Achan and the disaster, the military disaster that followed in the Battle of Ai, because actually hearts were not prepared and cleansed. Six times, the Nehemiah account mentions the repair of homes. And it seems that the leaders of the teams are deployed, the town is, that is, where their homes are. So the first thing they do is repair their homes. And I've heard preachers say, that was cunning of Nehemiah. He appealed to their self-interest. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're building, and it's your property. Instead, the homes we're talking about were built into the wall. They were part of the fortifications. Do you remember the prostitute Rahab at Jericho? And how her house was part of the wall. And the, 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 the spies got up and got into the house. Well, that was the situation. I'd invite you to think of it in a different way. The walls that these men were rebuilding were personal walls. And they were walls of prayer and purity and passion. There's a wall that we need around us of integrity. You can't start a great undertaking in God if your heart is full of criticism and gossip. <coughs> And putting other people down. And I see this period, okay, maybe I'm stretching a little bit, but metaphorically, it was a time when men and women, repairing their own walls, repaired their own hearts, and got into shape for the great adventure. And that wall must be continuous. A breach anywhere 
in that periphery, anywhere, can be fatal. Doesn't matter if it's big or small, everyone had to be cleansed and ready. That's how the sin of Achan brought down an army and caused the death of thousands. And then we see too that in any great undertaking for God, we need unity. We do need all for one and one for all. Jesus said it first, didn't he? He said it in Matthew 5. A house divided against itself cannot stand. They all had to be together just as we have to be together. That's, that's one reason why Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses the metaphor of the body to show how much we need each other. You know, an eye can't say an arm and an arm can't stand an eye because actually each needs the other as it is. Someone said a fellowship like yours is fellows working together in the same ship. Apologies, ladies, your fellows as well. Just as we call you all guys, don't mind the guys thing, but fellows working together in a fellowship. And here we see God somehow uniting everybody, the haves, the have-nots, the rich, the poor, the nobleman, the pauper, the townie, the countryman, the young and the old, the men and the women, in this, this wonderful mood. And that reminds me that we are actually accountable to each other. I should be as concerned for your salvation and your purity as I am for my own. I should be praying as much that you walk the, the narrow path as I do for myself. But here we come to the real point. Someone I once heard preaching on this said, before we can be affected for God, we must be affected by God. And I believe that these people were powerfully affected and impacted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus had to wait until the power of the Holy Spirit came on him after his baptism. And they may have been frustrating years for him, but he knew that without the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Holy Spirit depended, descended on him, then his hour had come. These, I've said it, were ordinary people, plus people, People like you and me. You know, there are no such thing as great Christians. You say, hey, hey, what about Luther? What about Wesley? What about Wicked? They were ordinary people. John Wesley had the most terrible trouble with his wife. We don't know about Paul's. But they were ordinary people with an extraordinary concept of God. Ordinary people with an extraordinary God. I'm looking on ordinary people. I'm an ordinary person. But I'm praying that our concept of God can get so much greater because that's the only thing that limits us. That's the only thing that stops you sending missionaries all over the world. I know, rebuilding if you wanted to, this a dozen times bigger, planting churches all over Somerset. It's the only thing that stops us. Dear friends, believe me, it's our vision of the greatness of God. The script doesn't actually tell us how we got it. I think part of it is about Nehemiah. He's, he's an astonishing man. And where he says at the, at the end of uh, verse 2, um, 
Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. That must have been a huge encouragement. And then he says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us his success. There must have been more to it. Often we only get a part of the action. But somehow, in, in those fraught days, the power of God came down on the people. And they moved as one. They needed their own encounter. And they needed the power of God to do what they did. I've got one, just one more thing to tell you. Scholars think that chapter 3, which is so different in the way it's presented in all those telephone directory names and so on, is actually an official list that was taken from somewhere else. And it's thought that Nehemiah's intention was to have this list as a kind of permanent memorial, a roll of honour to the heroes of the war. Isn't that lovely? And you know, he did the one thing under heaven and earth that could absolutely make that certain. Because this list of names that Jackie and I struggled through on your behalf is embedded in the word of God. And the word of God says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Until Jesus comes again, the names of these men and women will be read out and remembered. Now, my question to you and to me is how long will my name be remembered? How long will yours? How long will your achievements and the sacrifices you made for family and church and maybe country, how long will they be remembered? A generation? Two generations? In three generations, our own families will have forgotten us. Um, but there is another book. There is another book in which your name may or may not be written, and it's called in the Bible the Book of the Lamb or the Book of Life. We learn about it in Revelation. And there the wonderful thing is that if you've given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is yours, and you are his, your name is already written just as firmly as these names in the book of Nehemiah. And that means that your place in heaven is assured. It's already guaranteed. Can you say that this morning? Do you know that your name is with the heroes in the book of the Lamb, the book of the life? Because if you don't, I beg you not to leave this hall this morning without assuring that it is. Speak to one of your leaders. Speak to me. Let them pray with you. Let them show you how simply it's done. And you can go home knowing that your future for eternity is assured and your name is written in the book of life. I'm going to pray at closing prayer.